Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to this week's Pick a Flick podcast. My name's Philip Sharman and I'm guest hosting. Uh, Tony's asked me to sit in the presenter's chair this week and I'm very pleased to do so. You may recognise me from the Wiki Shuffle podcast and from my previous outings on Pick a Flick, uh, but I'm pleased to be here hosting this week. And I'm joined by two great guests and we've got a transatlantic feel to the show today because we're joined by Claire Turner from the Filmback podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. And whereabouts are you right now, Claire? Paint a picture for us. Absolutely. So I am sitting in a teeny tiny little room made of wood. Some people call it a cabin, but I call it my studio. And I'm sitting on 20 acres with a pond in deep south Georgia in the USA. Wow. That sounds pretty beautiful. Uh, a little bit different from the, the rainy Kettering that we're sat in recording. Um, and I'm joined by our other guest who's here at the Wiki, Wiki Shuffle studio with me. And that's Ruth Bradley. Hello. And she is, uh, this is the first time on Pick a Flick. And thanks for joining us. So we're going to, in keeping with the format of the show, we're going to be talking about two different films today that have been picked by listeners to the podcast. And... Oh, before I start, I've been told to point out the fact that we've got new opening title music, which I am assured is very good, but I haven't heard it yet, but you've listened to it, you're, or you're about to listen to it, um, and I'm to pass out thanks to Epidemic Sound, um, who have teamed up with Acast, and particularly Magnus Ringblom, um, whose music we're using for the new um, opening credits for Pick a Flick, so hopefully they're sounding just, just grand. And without further ado, let's pick a flick. And our first flick is Synecdoche, New York. And I've been practising how to pronounce Synecdoche. Very good. You did well. Thank you. Uh, have, have, is everyone else comfortable with the word synecdoche? Can I hear, hear your version? 
how I say it. I, I must yep. be saying it wrong because I say it's Schenectady. No, that's actually the place that's, in New York. That's the town, isn't it? And it's or not. City. It's supposed to sound like that. It's Schenectady. Well, see, then that's why I said it wrong. See, that's why you're right. I only found that out today, though. I didn't know that before. Oh, you know, you're becoming smart. (laughs) Synecdoche, New York is a 2008 American postmodern drama film written and directed by Charlie Kaufman and starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. It is Kaufman's directorial debut. The plot follows an ailing theatre director, Hoffman, as he works on an increasingly elaborate stage production whose extreme commitments to realism begins to blur the boundaries between fiction and reality. The film's title is a play on Synecdoche, New York, where much of the film is set, and the concept of synecdoche, wherein a part of something represents the whole or vice versa. The film premiered in competition at the 61st Annual Cannes Film Festival on May 23rd, 2008. Sony Pictures Classics acquired the United States distribution rights, paying no money but agreeing to give the film's backers a portion of the revenues. It had a limited theatrical release in the US on October 24th, 2008 and generated much less revenue than it cost. The story and themes of Synecdoche, New York, polarised critics. Some called it pretentious or self-indulgent, and others, including Roger Ebert, declared it as a masterpiece and ranked it among the best films of the 2000s. It was nominated for the Palme d'Or at the 2008 Cannes Film Festival. Sammy Barnathan? I don't have a resume or a picture. I've never worked as an actor. Good. Tell me why you're here. Well, I've been... I've been following you for 20 years. So I knew about this audition because I follow you. And I learned everything about you by following you. So hire me. And you'll see who you truly are. Pick him up. Okay. Hazel, I don't think we need to talk to anyone else. This guy has me down. I'm going to cast him right now. And then maybe you and I can get a drink and we can try to figure out this thing between us. Why I cried. Because I've never felt about anybody the way I feel about you. And I want to fuck you until we merge into a chimera. A mythical beast with penis and vagina eternally fused. Two pairs of eyes that look only at each other. And lips never touching you know one voice that whispers to itself okay So polarizing is the first word that comes out there. So we've got two sides we can potentially fall on, which is it pretentious and self-indulgent or is it a masterpiece? Claire, which side of the fence do you fall on? 
I think it's a masterpiece. I don't think it's easily accessible, though. I, I can see it possibly being both. I think it takes somebody who's very articulate and aware to appreciate it. And if you're not willing to expend the energy or the time and the patience to give it that, you're going to fail to see what is masterful about it. I think that's a very fair appraisal. What did you? What what side of the fence do you fall on, Ruth? Um, I I I think we're pretty much in agreement there, actually. Um, I think that it is very self-indulgent, but that's okay. And I think that it's so self-indulgent and it's about self-indulgence. And I think in that way, it is a masterpiece. And so, yeah, I I agree with what you say. And I agree that, yeah, unless you are willing to put in the mental effort to understand it. You can't watch it passively, that's for sure. Oh, God, no, you can can play Candy Crush and watch watch this film. I absolutely think that it's a masterpiece and when I found out that it was an option for the for this run of Pick a Flip I absolutely bit Tony's arm off so that I could be on this show because I adore this film. It's certainly in my top 10 of films of all time and I love it to pieces. And the thought of being able to talk to people about exactly why I think it's so great fills me with joy. Well, well isn't that nice? <laughs> I can tell you, I'm glad that this was nominated for a review because, be honest, as much as I've seen, I had not seen this one. I'd heard about it, but I had not paid attention enough to stop and to watch it and to see how brilliantly it was executed and the talent of the cast that is here. It's just phenomenal. Absolutely agree. It is very much, as as much as it's portrayed as a Philip Seymour Hoffman film, if it wasn't for the ensemble that was backing him up, then he would be very much out at sea, and it very much is a, a team effort. That's that's absolutely true. Yeah, the cast that's involved is just, it's just a lineup, isn't it, really? I mean, it, anything that a lot of these actors do, I would just watch just because they're in it, and then to see them all together, I'd actually forgotten, having seen it, so many years ago, I think I went to see it in uh, an independent cinema in Leicester with you, actually, Phil. And for the first time, that was years ago, I'd forgotten who else was in it. And it is just such a great lineup. And the whole time they kept cropping up, I was like, oh, God, yeah, this, and you as well. <laughs> yeah, it's just brilliant. It's always a pleasant surprise. And I think even the minor characters had such a contribution. And I cannot tell you, I love Samantha Morton, but I don't think I've ever loved her more than in this she was just brilliant and charming and very nuanced and even underplayed her part yes i'd I'd like to revisit what you said earlier claire about the accessibility of it because i think it's uh it's a very reasonable criticism of the film that it isn't an easy watch and that it does take a a leap of faith to really immerse yourself in the narrative style that it throws at you because this is not a conventional story that we're being shown here you'll get lost if you're not paying attention i saw something with a script supervisor and for you know those who don't have a filmmaking background and know that a script supervisor is what they used to call in hollywood a script girl and what they're responsible for is almost everything that happens actually in front of the camera so if on every take to mark the the slating and to mark the timing and how long each scene takes or what words are spoken or what was different about each take or when somebody's taking up like a smoke on this one or drinking or a sip on this set like every little thing that happens within that it's very important for them to keep up with it because they're the director's right hand and then they're the eyes for the editor. I saw something where the script supervisor for this film had 
a chart, a diagram of the world within the world within the world, how many levels deep that we go in, and how she was basically the only person who could keep up with where we were in the film and the progression, and even the director would refer to her a lot because he was getting lost in where are we in this world of this film. And even that alone to say that the people who were orchestrating these events, who were there making the film, um, we're getting so entangled in it that just tells you about the complexity and the depth that was there in that story. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's not a... I wouldn't have been wanting to work on the continuity here. To, <laughs> Good uh, gravy, no. <laughs> piece it all together. And the 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 script editing itself, generally the, the complexity of the script and multiple characters playing the same role effectively um, makes for a very complicated view and production-wise must have been an absolute nightmare to put together and the the involvement that that must have taken. Looking at the plot as it stands, because we, we had a, a brief introduction to the film there, but we, we glossed over the plot there, which is complicated, shall we say. <laughs> um, it, it's certainly not a traditional three-act structure that we're looking at in Synecdoche, New York. Um, we're concentrating on the story of Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, um, a theatre director called Caden Cotard. The development of his career and personal life where he's awarded a grant which basically gives him free reign to put on a play of a scale that is of his own setting. So effectively a blank check to write, to make a play. And what this play ends up becoming is a complete mirroring of his own disintegrating life, which itself is not shot with any degree of realism. And the lines blur very much between what's happening in his real life and then what's happening on the play within a play that doesn't even have a name, that takes years in the making. And the casting of that, his involvement with the characters, the people that are playing himself and his relatives, and then the multifaceted relationship that he then has on that next level with them. And yet, even that isn't what it's about. No, I think I think that's the staging. That's just that's not really the plot, is it? That's, no. that's the world that we're in, which is very complicated and could be and is, you know, a film in itself. But there's so many underlying. I mean, just reading about it in preparation for this, there's so many different theories out there on what is this film about? You know, it's almost Lynchian in that you could almost put anything on it that you wanted to. But, yeah, there's there's so many different theories going out there. So would you like to talk us through what some of those theories are and then which one has your backing? Okay, um, I don't, I'm going with Kaufman on this, having listened and read around it quite thoroughly and seen the different theories that are out there. There's one um, that was written about quite extensively, I can't remember who by, which is terrible of me, sorry if it was you and you're listening, but well done, it was... Thoroughly entertaining, where they picked up on that Caden Cotard, which is the um, main protagonist's name, the Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, Cotard actually is a condition where it's a delusion that you are already dead. And there's a few name drops like this. It's a typical sort of Kaufman sort of tool that he would use within his films of, um, you know, like a play on words to get you thinking. So there's the whole idea that he did commit suicide and he did die when his daughter was taken away by his wife. Catherine Keener character and his daughter Olive who leave and that he died then and everything after that is obviously after his death 
<laughs> as it were. There's that one, which I don't particularly stand with because I think that's a bit too simplistic. I think that it could be seen that way. And I think that elements of his uh, consciousness believes that potentially to be the case. But I don't think that's where Kaufman was going with it. Another one is it is a musing on solipsism which is the belief that only one's own mind is certain to exist so you only know that your consciousness is existing and everything else doesn't really matter and it's just taking that to the extreme i know that leading up to um, the inception of this film spike jones and kaufman were approached to create a horror they uh, they were commissioned said well you know we want you to make i can't remember who by uh, we wanted to make a horror film. And so they worked on that for quite a long time. And then Where the Wild Things Are came about and took Spike Jones completely out of the picture. And Charlie Kaufman was said to have then gone on to make this film. So it could be amusing on self-indulgence. And is that a horror in itself, if you were to take that to its extreme? I think there are definitely elements of parts of the film that are so unnerving that it wouldn't be unrealistic to call it a horror film. Mm, absolutely. It's... That it's shot like a stress dream is how mm -hmm. it feels to me. Yeah. It's shot, and I think that doesn't work as a theory that it's just one big long dream, uh, which I I've kind of looked at in the and but that's how it's shot. That the way that time especially is played with mm. is the way that it's just a manifestation of anxiety and fear. A big recurring theme, certainly at the first half of the film, is uh, Seymour Hoffman's own fears about his health and constant worry that he's suffering from all kinds of undiagnosed conditions and that he's going to be dying. And thank, I, I like about the film that it kind of lets that go and lets a, a different kind of paranoia overtake it, a, a kind of a less selfish paranoia, kind of, and it becomes a lot warmer as the film goes on, that his fear isn't about just his personal existence, it becomes about his family being taken away from him, it becomes about him not having control over the people that he loves. And that, to me, is a very interesting move in the film in the way that it shifts its focus like that. And it does it a couple of times, mm. more times than you expect, because uh, it's not a short film. Uh, it runs at pretty much spot on two hours. Um, and you do think, oh, they could have got out of that a bit earlier, but you're glad they don't because they take it in a new direction each time there was a sort of natural pause for an ending. Claire, what, what, what's your take on what the narrative is trying to, to tell us? You know, I think that there's room, I think two things, you know, having written a few screenplays, I have a a personal perspective on what the story is about to me, but I'm also somebody who likes to give the audience room to interpret it for themselves and say, what does it mean to you? And to say that there's room for multiple right answers within the same space. Yes. Th it and is, that's its strength. It is its strength. It, it is a strength of it. Because it is a world within a world within a world, and I can't remember how many levels we go deep inside that, but I think it affords even more opportunity and possibility for there to be multiple correct explanations of that. I I think it was Ebert who said uh, um, that he watched it once um, you know, to watch it, and he watched it a second time because he needed to understand it better, and then uh, again because he wanted to. Um, to appreciate the, the, the mastery of it. And I'm at that point. I can't say for myself where I fall within that without having watched it again with time to digest. But what I can identify in the movie is a lot of that is, I think, within any of the true answers, one could say a lot of it is about disintegration. 
um, yes. and about how we can break down both physically on the exterior and um, emotionally, psychologically uh, on the interior. Yeah, I think mm. that that's, that's definitely a recurring theme that it comes back to. And in a lot of films that are as high concept as Synecdoche, New York, the fact that it doesn't answer those questions for you can be very frustrating. But I feel very much that it was the right decision to not uh, not offer an explanation for why the time frame is so disjointed and why there were unrealistic things happening. That would have diminished the impact of the film for me, certainly. I like the freedom and the ambiguity. Um, it used to trouble me. It used to make me just livid because I wanted there to be an answer and I wanted to be right, damn it. It's, I wanted to be right about everything. And it's been over the last several years that I've come to appreciate grace, for one thing, more grace in my life, not always having to be right, but for there to be a yes and, or a yes but, or a yes but what if. Um, for instance, and we'll talk about Nolan a little bit later, but even in, what's that movie, Inception, where there's so much ambiguity, especially at the end, it used to trouble me. But I like the freedom in that because you can choose to be right. You can choose to believe that it is what you want that to be. And I think for those of us who want to internalize film and not just uh, consume it passively, that there is another level of respect in that. There's a, another level of intimacy in, in film that way. And, and I like that about this movie. And it certainly is an intimate film. It's all warts and all in terms of what it's portraying and the weaknesses that it's showing in the in the um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. He is not your traditional hero. This is not a sexy man. This is not an... Uh, as much as his achievements are significant, he's obviously a very a, a successful theatre director, but that's not where the focus is. The focus is the insecurities that, that secure that, that surround that. The film made me feel vulnerable is you really feel for the characters and that's something that Kaufman does in his writing is he really makes you uneasy and the way that he'll put you in the character's position just to set your feet right inside their shoes. And sometimes those laces get cinched and brought tight or sometimes he'll let you wiggle around in them and, and feel the looseness and the pacing when you're walking along with the character and it's absolutely unsettling because it brings you to an awareness of your own vulnerability or um, your own failures and I was I was mourning with Philip Seymour Hoffman's character throughout the film yes I, I totally agree I think um, everything you said is is extremely similar to the way that I I view the film and I view film generally in that yet yeah, it is it is wonderful to be right and to know that something oh this is what it's about in that some films they know exactly what they want to be and they serve that up to you and some do it very artistically and some do it in a very complicated manner some do it very simply and there's there's rewards and merits to that but i love in this film and in Kaufman's Kaufman's outlook altogether in that I think he doesn't know I think he leaves it open to expression and I think he is instead of making statements he's more musing on what he is thinking about at that point and he's obviously a very complicated and intelligent man and I think as well the way he deals with social anxiety and you know whether that comes from a personal place within him or something he's experienced I think he does it extremely well and it is very unsettling to watch I think we're all completely knowledgeable in some way of what that feels like to be 
weak and to be vulnerable or anxious. And I think that these films that he's made in particular are particularly really good at sort of making you feel that way. And to be lonely. As a theme, Hollywood is terrified of mentioning loneliness. It seems like if you have a character that's lonely, that character is by default um, a failure and not somebody that's worth our attention. And so it was really refreshing to have a character say explicitly on film, I am heartbreakingly lonely and I don't know what to do about this. And that felt really, feels really fresh about it. I, yeah, I think you know, one of the wonderful things that art can do is it can hold a mirror to us. And that is obviously an uncomfortable thing or to look into that that glass and to see your own weaknesses and then there's a lot of writing is such a personal thing um and it's easy to do the the hollywood blow them up bang them up you know movies because it's really not going to make you feel that uncomfortable other than you wonders the damsel in distress going to get rescued and how is she going to be untied and saved from the tower you know whatever it is but when somebody is not making you uncomfortable that that's easy somebody's going to, to hold up that mirror and you're examining the work itself and how you relate to it and your failures or your brokenness or your grace or whatever that is that's not an easy thing it requires a lot of effort and that's why films like this one and most of my favorites have not done well at the box office yeah i wanted to to mention something you were talking about the need to be right and in movies and for myself I can definitely be a snob a hundred thousand percent and I'm aware of that and I saw this meme on social media this week and in this description it's not about movies but this is the way it related to me there's uh, a cartoon character of uh, a guy and he's carrying two different things of beer in his hand one is like a six-pack of bottles and the other is like a, a case of canned beers and it says beer enthusiast I bought a six-pack from the brew pub downtown, plus some Miller Lite for the host, since that's what he likes. Underneath that, there's one that says Beer Snob, and it's this guy who's just holding up, like, a bottle, and he's got a ponytail, and he just looks like a douche. And he says, I bought a single growler of impossibly small-batch craft beer. I'm going to force you to try one lukewarm ounce, and then corner you for half an hour to try to explain to you why drinking Miller Lite makes you... Less than human. <laughs> and I looked at that and I thought about how very much I, without being careful or giving other people space, can tend to be like that in film. You know, like, die hard a million, are you kidding? Rocky again, what? You know, and then I'm like, oh, let's let's watch this this Kaufman film. Let's let's sit down and really get into it. Let's watch Sunshine Cleaning or Lars and the Real Girl and go over all these other films that I like so much because of what they say about that. But it's just been interesting to me to to give people more space and not to need to be right and to learn to appreciate the thing for the thing itself. Sure. I think one of the things I'm very nervous doing, because obviously we're talking about the, the, the depth and the involvement that's that's present in Synecdoche, New York, I'm worried that we're making it sound a lot drier than it is, and as though it might be scary to people who haven't um, watched the film before and might find it inaccessible, because for all its hard work, it is a very warm film, it is an inviting film that has... That, that will bring you in. It has got its funny moments. It's it doesn't take itself funny. too seriously at all. Um, this is not a particularly chin-stroking, high-minded film that I think and I hope that um, everybody could get something from it. 
Although I could understand, as you say, it not being for everybody. My husband hated it. Oh, oh really? really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was like, mm, whatever. I'm like, it's beautiful, look! And it, I would think it was just after two years ago that we lost Philip Seymour Hoffman. And it made me grieve him all over again. Like, look, sweetie, it's so wonderful. I miss him so much. I was literally crying saying how much I missed him. And my, my dear husband, who is a wonderful person, but who does not enjoy things to the same level or depth that I do. Like, ah, <laughs> eh, okay. But it's it's not for everybody. I agree with you. No, I was watching a, a an interview with Kaufman recently, and the interviewer, I don't know who it was, they were actually faceless in the YouTube video that I was watching, was trying to put on, being John Malkovich in particular, and then they moved on to Synecdoche, New York, trying to put on all of these huge theories that he has, so I presume, and he was basically grandstanding his opinions and his wonderful theories, hoping that Charlie Kaufman, I think, was going to say, oh, you've got it dead right. That's exactly You're brilliant. That's exactly what I was thinking. And the audience would clap and, and it would be like one of those aha moments for everyone watching. But Kaufman pretty much just sort of listened and looked a bit puzzled and just said, oh, I just thought that bit was funny. And I think that really sort of <laughs> sums up to me how I feel about the films that he's made so far and with directors such as Spike Jones and I think that you can put on it whatever you want but you can almost bet that it probably came from a dream or a funny idea or something they saw that made them laugh and it's just coming from a bigger place it seems so much bigger than what it is and it does make you think but I I'm pretty sure that we're putting onto it a lot more than what was originally intended to be there and that's what makes them fantastic, obviously. I, I agree with you. I think a lot of the times when it comes to writing something that the writer doesn't necessarily set down to tell a truth or to tell necessarily even a story, but what they're looking to set down and do is discover something or discover the truth or to discover a story. And I think we as the audience members or the readers um, go along with them on that journey. I don't think it's very often that somebody sits down just to flesh out a completely understood idea and to express that or convey that to the masses. No, and I think that we all have seen that, even though we know that. And you saying that to me, I think, oh, well, yeah, I know that. But then how often do I watch a film? Comes to us in a full piece. Yeah, how often do we watch films and then are still assuming, well, they obviously knew where this plot was coming from. But when you actually think about it, no, they probably didn't at all. They absolutely probably didn't. Especially when you've got a film that is as complex as Synecdoche, New York, I think it's natural for you to pick out the bits that you most closely relate to and that resonate mm. best with you and kind of take ownership of those pieces. And so they resonate louder, they make a bigger noise, and you think that, yeah, that's where the beats are in the story, whereas somebody else watching it from a different point of view. I think, for me personally, the first time I saw it was when it came out, so that was 2008, and then I watched it again um, a f when it was got a DVD release shortly after that. But this was the first time I'd seen it in a while. And I was watching it this time from being in a long-term relationship, which I wasn't when I saw it before. <laughs> and that made a real difference to my perception of it. The story about the, the relationship with the wife who moves away and the end of that relationship seemed much more critical and much more of a factor than it did when I watched it when I was single. And the, the themes of death seems more resonant because I've lost my father since I last saw mm. it. And so those scenes, they played differently for me. And there are so many bits of that. And I imagine if I had kids, I'd see those bits differently. 
like when we went to see Marley and me and you cried and I didn't cry, but now I've got a dog, I definitely would cry. That's what you mean, isn't it? Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. I think that's one of the reasons why it's really good to go back and revisit art, um, even if we didn't like it the first time, because there's always something to, to be said. And no one piece is single faceted. You know, everything is multifaceted. And just depending on where you are in your perspective or where you're coming from in your life, you could just see one side of it and you can walk away and do something else and when you come back even to the same room to see the same piece you're you're coming at it and you're seeing the other side of that i was recently speaking to somebody about this the film lars and the real girl and the first times that i'd seen the film and i love it it's one of my favorites had not been when i was caring for a mentally ill family member and watching it again having cared for somebody with a mental illness there is a whole level um, added of depth and, and complexity and, and really a beauty. And I recommend again and again and again, go back, read something again, go back, watch it again, listen to it again, because there's always something else to be offered. Are you saying I need to watch Marley and Me again because I don't think I want to? <laughs> I don't think I want to <laughs> now you've either. Seen that one. <laughs> if it impacted you in the right way the first time, that's okay. <laughs> it didn't me. I sat there like I was made of stone, but now uh, I don't want to see it now. It sounds like an absolute horror. But at the time, I was like, what? <laughs> it's not a good film, but it makes you cry. It's designed. That's what it's well, engineered the do- the dog- for. Well, spoilers <laughs> all over that. <laughs> That segues nicely into speaking about Charlie Kaufman more generally and his overall film career and the other pieces that he's worked on because it's not limited purely to Synecdoche, New York. In fact, I would say that it is still one of his uh, least known films. And obviously that was his directorial debut. Prior to that, Charlie Kaufman's most known for his writing, I would say specifically for being John Malkovich for adaptation and for eternal sunshine of the spotless mind i think that those are the those are the three really so would someone like to chip in with their thoughts about his writing work i think it's interesting the contrast between him being director and him solely taking charge of his writing and him writing and then letting someone else sort of you know take charge of it i think the contrast there's brilliant and to see how if left to his own devices he can make a film about self-indulgence that is so self-indulgent and he was left to be self-indulgent. I just think it's just wonderful. And who else would, who wouldn't want that? Yeah. Well, he'd, he'd earned that right, hadn't he? Oh, absolutely. And he, he did it to the fullest degree. I mean, you know, he made a New York inside a New York inside a New York. I mean, it's just, it's just wonderful. Uh, whereas before, I think having it reined in and I listened to a review by Mark Commode of Synecdoche, New York, where he, he, just hated it, basically, saying that it was self-indulgent and it needed an editor and it needed somebody else to rein him in and to say no. And I just really disagree with that. Not that I don't like the other films, I do. I just think they're very different beasts. From what I've seen of Kaufman, he seems to be kind of on the private side, kind of a, a personal person. 
And the fact that a lot of his writing has been so much about what happens internally, I'm curious about him. I don't need to know. If he wants to be private, that's absolutely great, and I respect that. But I'm wondering what, how he spent his time as a kid. What was it that shaped him to be so curious about the mind and how it affects us? I think his strongest piece that I've seen, and I haven't seen Anomalisa yet, but the strongest thing that I've seen or the thing that I enjoy the most has definitely been Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I, I love his work, and I think as I get older and I visit it again and grow up a little bit more and come back and visit it again, that I will appreciate it on a deeper level every time. And I, I look forward to discovering those different levels. I think Eternal Sunshine of the Mind is much, of the Spotless Mind, sorry, is much more accessible but i think it would it is more accessible but it would serve as a very good springboard into synoptic in new york because once you've allowed yourself to accept that what you're watching happening on the screen isn't a literal truth that you might be used to in in the majority of, of hollywood films that it's playing around with the visuals and that it doesn't need to be an accurate depiction once you've got yourself in that framework i think then you perhaps are a little bit more ready to allow yourself to enjoy Synecdoche in New York than if you were just to go to it cold. Again, I think it takes a certain type of mindset to fully appreciate it. But I think there's a in both films, anybody watching them would be hard pressed to say, you know, their um, imagination wasn't inspired or they weren't curious to think about it for longer than if it was just, say, I don't know, an extremely surrealist film, for instance. I think they're both still watchable, even if you only think about it in a very limited way. All of his films are, are really enjoyable and funny. Uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. He actually started off his career and and cut his teeth, as it was, working on very much comedy TV series, The Dana Carvey Show in 1996, and then in the early 90s, a sketch show called The Edge, which I'm not familiar with at all. Does that mean anything to you, Claire? Uh, not right off. I would have been a little bit young uh, for that. Uh, but it got Jennifer Aniston in it, apparently. Fox comedy featuring a lethal opening sequence each week, followed by several short humorous skits and parodies of television commercials. So he was writing for that. That's where he got his his break, uh, which is interesting. So he has come, and I think that that sense of humor is definitely showing in his in his work. I do. It's a different kind of humor, though. It's it's smart, funny. I would guess because of who he is and how he writes that starting out as a a younger guy writing sketch comedy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's been a little frustrating for him. I wonder what the writer's room was like for him and how well he connected or even worked well with others. Yes. I think he- working for a show like that requires a lot of collaboration. And a lot of his writing is so internal that I could imagine I would have a difficult time with that. Sure. I, think, I think he was older from what I know about it. I don't know if you can confirm this looking at your laptop as you are, Phil. But um, I think he was about 30, 32 when he first actually made it into screenwriting. I think you're correct for that, that he was in his 30s. But just looking at how much growth has been in his work yeah. along the way. And I think that from from working in the industry the little bit that I have, it almost doesn't matter what age you start when you're working with others in that industry. You still have to go through a lot of the same growth, a lot of the, the same ropes. You still have to start a lot at the bottom and climb your way up and learn those lessons. Um, just because you're older, um, like in the corporate world, if you're older, it's easier to get a managerial position and, and to work your way in that way. But um, it's it's not always the same working in film. So I wonder, maybe not when he was so young, but just starting out, what some of those growing pains for him would have been. Yeah, 19, 1958 he was born. So, yeah, he, he didn't have a, a young start, certainly. I okay. had no idea he was that old. Yeah. That's like he looks good for it. Looking at the picture here, age. he's yeah, he's looking good. So <laughs> there we are. We'll we'll wrap up. Is he an attractive uh, man? He's, he's an attractive man. Is um where where where, <laughs> we'll, where we'll close this off. Um, <laughs> so thank you very much to Matthew Brady who nominated Synecdoche, New York, for inclusion on Pick a Flick, and you can find. Uh, Matthew at his Twitter account, which is at BradyM03. And there was also um, some feedback that we got over Twitter when we announced this was one of the films that we were doing. Eric Marshall at eMarsh says, Synecdoche, New York is a masterpiece. I watch Eternal Sunshine at least once every six months. And I've certainly seen Eternal Sunshine more times than I have Synecdoche, but I think Synecdoche is the better film. But takes a lot more effort and I would need to psych myself up more to watch where I could watch um, Eternal Sunshine a little bit more casually. I think I'm going to watch it again soon because I haven't seen it probably for about 10 years. Well, so. once every six months mm. is the designated amount that you're supposed to oh watch Oh dear, I'm, I'm going to have to watch it a lot then, aren't I, to catch up, <laughs> to make up for yeah, it? Yeah, just five times in a row. <laughs> is that the designated amount to make you a good human? Yep. If, according to Eric Marshall, yeah, anybody that <laughs> listen that watches uh, that watches Eternal Sunshine less than once every six months is subhuman. He says that. Those oh are his my words. So let's move on to our second film, which has been nominated by Steve Aldersley, 
whose Twitter account is at in the frame one, and he has nominated Memento. Memento is a 2000 American neo-noir psychological thriller film directed by Christopher Nolan. The screenplay was written by Nolan based on his younger brother Jonathan Nolan's short story, Memento Mori. It stars Guy Pearce, Carrie Ann Moss and Joe Pantaleano. Memento is presented as two different sequences of scenes interspersed during the film. A series of black and white that is shown chronologically and a series of colour sequences shown in reverse order, simulating in the audience the mental state of the protagonist who suffers from anterograde amnesia. The two sequences meet at the end of the film at producing one complete and cohesive narrative. Memento premiered on September the 5th, 2000 at the Venice International Film Festival and was released in Europe theatres starting in October 2000. It was acclaimed by critics who praised its non-linear narrative structure and motifs of memory, perception, grief and self-deception. The film was successful at the box office and received numerous accolades including Academy Award nominations for Best Original Screenplay and Best Film Editing. The film was subsequently ranked one of the best films of the decade by several critics and media outlets. Tell me about her again. Why? Because you like to remember her. She was beautiful. To me, she was perfect. No. Don't just recite the words. Close your eyes and remember her. You can just feel the details. The bits and pieces you never bothered to put into words. And you can feel these extreme moments, even if you don't want to. You put these together and you get the feel of a person. Enough to know how much you miss them. And how much you hate the person who took them away. So, Claire, you gave an audible yay at the mention of the film. (laughs) (laughs) So, I'm guessing this is a favourite of yours. I I really, really like this one. I do. For reasons other than the fact that I have a crush on Guy (laughs) Pearce. Tell us about some of those reasons. Or go into more detail about how beautiful Guy Pearce is. Both are are viable answers. My husband might listen to this. (laughs) Um, I love Christopher Nolan. I really do. And I've seen almost everything he's done. And the funny thing is, one of my favorite things that he's done was early in his career. I want to say it may have even been when he was still a student. Maybe, Maybe it was after film school. But it was called Following. And having seen... Memento and The Prestige and Inception and everything else that he's done, going back and seeing Following gave me a really good look. There's there's a wink and a nod to everything that he's done after in this one film, and it makes me appreciate his depth as a filmmaker. And I think Memento really was the first time that everybody got to to see that. Memento came out in 2000, and before then he had just done a short film and then the film 
following, which I mentioned. Um, and then after that, he really took off and has had excellent success at everything he's done since. I I like him so much for his depth and the worlds that he builds. He is an excellent world builder when it comes to, to writing and directing. And uh, this one makes your head spin. And I've seen that somebody put this movie together in chronological order. I haven't watched that. I'd be very, very interested to, but I've seen that somebody has stitched together that that work. It's a DVD extra, but, I think, um, on the on the special edition that you can you can get to see it. Not on mine. Um, I need to get a new one then. I think yeah, it's quite well hidden. I believe you've got to you've got to jump through some hoops. It's an Easter egg on one of the special editions um, oh, where you can. I don't get think to I have the special it. edition. I need to go get that. Um, but no, I haven't seen that either. Um, but I, I can use my memory to imagine what it would be like. <laughs> If you don't have short-term memory loss, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and thankfully I don't, because it seems awful. I don't think I'd like it at all. And all those tattoos, Phil. You don't like getting tattoos, do you? I don't, no. I don't, I don't, I don't want to get a tattoo. No. I only have one, and my husband shrugged at that one, so that probably wouldn't be good. <laughs> just before we go into the depths of the film, can we just focus on the tattooing side of it? Having had tattoos myself, large and small, I don't understand how he would go through... I mean, how does he... Maybe I'm getting into a bigger subject here by accident, but A, how does he know what he's doing when he's doing the tattoo to carry on doing it? Because I presume that he wasn't tattooed before, but maybe I'm presuming that. And also, why would he remember? And also, how long does his memory last and that he's halfway through a tattoo to then know why he's continuing to do that tattoo. Because he's got cards and they're in his own handwriting and he trusts his own handwriting. That's I, the rule that he's where he's himself. doing the tattoo himself. Yeah, well, he can still see. He's not blind. No, I know that he can see the tattoo and what he's doing, but how does he know during doing the tattoo, oh, I'm doing this tattoo for this reason? Because he's got a little card with it written down what he's got to tattoo on himself. Would you not question that? No, because it's in his own handwriting. Yeah, I would. That's the that's the whole <laughs> point. And the whole message of the film is that you shouldn't trust your own memory and the own memos that you're writing to yourself. But he does, because those are the rules that he set down for himself. The the memory loss thing is is something that people who are hardcore have picked up maybe a plot hole. It's something that I say, well, if he can remember this but can't remember this other thing, like if he has short-term memory loss, and how does he remember that his wife has died? And uh, People had that. People who want to get nitpicky, you think somebody said maybe it wasn't short-term memory loss, but it was more that he had, I think somebody called it a brain cloud. So, yeah, I, I'm, I don't like to pick that part apart too much because I like it for what it is, and I don't want to, to poke a hole into something and then to see it. Sure. I, I think there's there's an argument. For... So I don't want to ruin it. For <laughs> See, I, if it's there. I can't help myself. I don't know what it is about this film. And I remember when I first watched it, I hated it. But now I've watched it again. I watched it recently. I did like it more than hating it. I definitely saw it as a good film. I saw it as, you know, really interesting concept. And it was a good film. I didn't love it. I definitely didn't love it. And it led me to that shameful, horrible place that you've just described of, oh, but this wouldn't be possible if this. And what about this? And questioning it and poking holes in it. And I don't like to do that. And I do do that if I just can't help myself. And with this film, for whatever reason, I just... So it won't quite let you suspend your disbelief as no. much as you should be able to. No, and I, I want to get lost in it, but there's something about it that just irks me, and I don't know what it is. I, I can't put my finger on it. Yeah, the funny thing for me was um, every time I watched it, 
like the first five times I'd watched it, that was interesting is how dynamically uh, my feelings for each of the characters shifted. Mm. You know, for who you had empathy for or who you just absolutely felt rage against or for who you wanted to have vengeance. And it it was very interesting. It's almost like you watch it again and the the object turns and you just you see a, another side of it every single time. You see, I felt that the the high concept, the playing with the chronology the way that it does, stopped me from feeling that level of empathy because I was too worked up in trying to put the plot back together. Um, and yeah, it was twisting and turning with these people, but doing it so quickly and without enough depth for me to feel as though I was getting to know them well enough. And I know that's intentional. I, I don't think that that's accidental that that's happened. But it still let me feel adrift and as though the premise was a stronger feature than the actual characterization, And that's its weakness for me. Me too. I think, I think that's, that's true in the fact that I don't care about any of those characters, having seen it twice, which, again, I don't watch films over and over, so that's, that's a decent watching for me. Um, some films I don't even get to the end, you know, so two, that's a good run. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't feel any empathy for any of the characters or even dislike. I just felt like, in the end, oh, don't like any of you, you know, which is fine, but not even in a strong way. I felt like, yeah, you are spending your time appreciating the concept and I think the concept is done very well and a lot of thoughts gone into it and they've executed it brilliantly but that's all there is there for me. I'm trying to remember what was that based off of I think Christopher Nolan took that approach based off of a play to have time moved forward but to use a chronology backwards. Do, do you guys know what I'm talking about? I think um, I'm, I not aware. The, the, I'm not aware. I'm not aware of that. A, a the film's that. based on his brother's short story, but yeah. I'm not sure whether the narrative structure was the same in the short the, story the or whether it was just the premise that he I took. watched a little short documentary today where it was Christopher Nolan himself and a, a chalkboard explaining how and why he chose to do it backwards. And it was just after having verbally heard the idea of the story from his brother, he decided that that would be the best way to tell the story. And he actually wrote his screenplay, having not read the story that his brother had written, having just, I think they had a car journey or something, and then they discussed it and both went their separate ways. And he wrote the short story and Christopher Nolan wrote the film. That's right, yeah, because it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, even though it was based on the story because the film came out was well, he hadn't before read the, story. the story was published. And, so it yeah. qualified as an original screenplay. Sorry to... No, no, over. sorry. Having not read the short story, and I'm sure you haven't either, no. it's hard to know how different they are. But in this bit that I saw of him talking about it, he approached the timeline in the way that it was the most logical way for him to tell the story. And it was just to do it backwards the way that he did, because that is the way that it made sense for him. And then his brother did a very similar thing, and they did that sort of independently. I think one of the factors that makes me not love this film um, is the fact that I went to university to study screenwriting in the year 2000, which was the same year that Memento was released. As you can imagine, this film had quite a big impact on the people of that course. And so everybody wanted to play around with memory loss. Everybody oh, no. wanted to shift chronologies and run stories backwards. And so the number of derivative ideas that were existing on my screenwriting course while I was there made me think, 
damn this film for creating this monster. <laughs> um, and I, I've resented it for that reason as well. And it's certainly the first time I've revisited it for a long while watching it for, for this for this podcast. I've just looked it up here, and it was Harold Pinter in 1983 in his film Betrayal, which was based on his play that told the narrative backwards. Okay, so it's based on a Pinter idea. Well, that's interesting. The other criticism I'd have of Memento, and it is a solid piece of work, that's certainly the world building you were talking about, that's very much there, and it's tonally very consistent. And it's a criticism I have of most of Christopher Nolan's films, is that it all takes Uh-oh. it all <laughs> takes itself a little bit too seriously. It's just a bit too po-faced throughout the whole running. I would like to see a bit of brevity to to lay off the the accelerator like a, a wink or or like that that you know that they're playing or, or like what no, just a just a breath just some um some some more warmth in the character maybe a little bit of not so i'm not talking slapstick comedy but something that's just a little bit lighter rather than the 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 very intense and consistent voice that it has throughout the length mm. of the film I think it knows exactly, in, in a different way to the film we just discussed, Synecdoche in New York, I think it has an extremely clear intent as to where it's going. It knows what it is. It knows what it is. Yeah. And I think that that's either something somebody's going to love or they're going to f- and find it irksome, which I think I do because I, I feel like I've got nowhere to go with it personally. I think it's a personal opinion rather than a flaw with the film. Yeah, It's obviously fair, so. a very good film. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I think if it were to be lighter or um, give you a little more or breathing room, I don't find it to be as convincing. Sure. I like to be lifted almost like a, a marionette, a, a puppet on strings, just yanked out of my little puppetry stage and plopped into another world. I, I like that where I have to get my footing. I have to figure out who am I, where am I, what's happening, and to catch pace just as soon as possible. I like that very much, and I think if there was more breathing room or it you know, took a, a little bit more time to turn up the temperature and make it warmer, that it wouldn't be as convincing. I think it would take more time to, like, it's trying to convince you. I, I think that's a very reasonable point of view. and It's very face value. I think if that's what you were looking for for a film, then this is the perfect vehicle for that, in that um, it's constructed very thoughtfully to take you step by step. And it's not a simple step by step. That's really sort of patronising of me to say that, actually, because it's not a simple concept. It's not a, you know, a, a sort of paint-by-numbers film by any stretch of the imagination, but it does very much guide you through this story and takes you all the way around from the end to the beginning to the end, as it were, and you have no choice but to go with it. So I think for that intent, then I can totally see why you would really like it, definitely. And I think if I maybe rewatched it, not trying to think of it in a critical way and maybe just relaxed more and just let it take me, maybe I would have appreciated it more. I don't know. And still at the end, when it happens and you know what's going to happen, you still have like a, a forehead smack. It, um, it's funny how you can know something. You know the truth. You know the end. And yet when it's presented, it's still a surprise. Yes, I think that that's, that's true. Mm. Um, and it is a, a detailed twist in that regard. And I, watching it again recently, I did still think, oh, yeah, that's how 
the stories were linked together and I didn't see it coming the second even though I'd seen it before um I hadn't I had no idea what was going to happen the second time I mean obviously it's been a long time since I've seen it because I think I saw it when it first came out and I haven't seen it since um so I absolutely had no idea the second time around how the story played out and so it was all you know very much news to me um I love the the representation of the story, the concept itself, with the fading Polaroid. That something's not developing; it's it's still moving backwards, and yet it's like a, a physical representation of his memory dissolving as well. It was a nice motif, and it set in play the notion of time being played with as well as an opener. That was effective, and it did it served a lot of a lot of roles there. See, to me, that was the best yeah, bit it, of the film, and I feel like it <gasps> didn't give you enough more of that and also there's um i wrote notes when i was watching it and i didn't write very many because um, i found it really difficult to sort of to find myself in that film other than just watch it for what it was i found original thought wasn't coming freely that i didn't write many notes but one thing i did comment on was obviously the polaroid at the start because it's it's such an obvious metaphor but it's it's lovely it's just brilliant i i loved that but there isn't much else by the way of sort of artistic symbolism throughout the film. Well, I didn't think so anyway. There's some scenes where there's sort of um, full-colour flashbacks where he remembers his wife, and those scenes are beautiful, the close-up shots and the artistry in the filmmaking. I just didn't feel that in any other areas of the film, and I just really wished that that would have been more evident. I thought the rest, I didn't really notice the cinematography in any other parts of the film. Or, or the artistry, it was m- very much more plot-based. Talking about that reminded me, it was kind of surprising when you step back and you look at the, the Sammy Jenkins character, and when you know the truth about that, how surprising it is that they cast that role or they wrote that role so differently. I get that movie has been out for like 15, 16 years now. Um, I don't know how you guys about spoilers. Are spoilers okay? Stay away. Um, I think in this case, I'm not even sure if it is a spoiler because it saves. It, it definitely doesn't. I don't know what you're going to say. Am I being stupid here? <laughs> so, um, I, well, so please I say it. We'll, we'll try and avoid being too spoilery. I think what you're trying to say, Claire, is the realization that the Sammy Jankis character, who is a flashback character, may be more related and differently related to Guy Pierce's Leonard character than we were originally led to believe. Watching it again. It's really wonderful. It was a brilliant move because if you're watching it for the first time, that's not going to be what you assume first because of that. And it's it's interesting because then it begs the question, which is the true representation of that character? Yes. I loved that. I, I really loved that. I, as a filmmaker, as a writer, that probably would not have been my first choice. I probably would have been a little more evasive or elusive in that approach. And I love what they did because they put it right in front of you and yet you could still almost miss it. Yes, that was nicely handled. Yeah, and by... Stephen Tobolowski is wonderful. Isn't he? Um, yeah, he's absolutely fantastic. I love him. Um, and you had the, the pleasure of interviewing him for the um, Film Back podcast relatively recently, didn't you? How was he to, how was he to speak with? Oh, goodness. He was really wonderful. I don't know if you heard that part where I say Stephen. 
Stephen Tobolowski. I thought that was you. Just like the the bit from Groundhog, and he played along with me, and he said Bing, <laughs> and I, I cackle and I laugh my head off. But I that was literally for at least twenty years. I had always told myself if I ever saw him in public, I would go up to him and introduce myself that way. <laughs> and I never imagined that I would get to do that twenty years later. And uh, I, he was just a, a dream and a delight. And getting to speak to him, he was so much more wise and so much more insightful than one would have assumed. And um, he's just a lovely actor through and through and loves what he does, big and small. And I thought his portrayal, his performance in this movie was, again, fantastic. Yes, I agree. Right, so let's end our chat about Memento there. Um, hopefully we can all remember the points that we made. Let, let me, let me. Oh yeah, please. Quick. Sorry. Go ahead. I want to ask Ruth. Ruth, I want to ask. I want to ask my friend there a question. Coming from another gal, did we like the bleach blonde hair or not? No. Well, I have conflicting views about Guy Pearce anyway because I don't know if you're aware of Neighbours, but he will always be Mike from Neighbours and LA Confidential. I think kind of took that away a bit enough but he will always be mike from neighbors so do, do you I know what it... <laughs> do you know what neighbors is claire i haven't seen neighbors tell me educate me neighbors is an australian daytime soap opera which <laughs> which ran yeah. hugely popular in in england especially in the 80s and 90s so we, we were pretty much really? raised on well i was raised on neighbors it's only probably about five years ago i stopped watching it yeah. Having watched it for probably 20-odd, it's still going. It still goes. There are hardcore fans in the UK. I don't even know if they show it in Australia anymore. But because... a, a surprising number of Hollywood stars got their break on Neighbours. Um, but or, or for, Home and Away, which is the other one. the other Australian the other... daytime soap, which is Home and Away. And I will have to look that up. There's so many. Isla Fisher's one. Or we could list them all day. Let's not do that. That would be a boring, <laughs> a boring <laughs> show. No, like... let's not do that. We'll <laughs> be here all day. It's tempting to, <laughs> Um, funny I had no idea so so we didn't like the blonde hair then. no did you I did years ago I think it was very of its time I'm not so sure I you know that was something I wanted to say earlier is I think this film was very much of its time um I I don't know that were this film released today it would be the same um I I don't expect it would have done as well um, I, I agree with you there. Speaking of time, though, me and, well, my partner and I both made the comment after watching it again, uh, Memento, that it is very timeless in itself, apart from the bleach blonde hair. But it is very hard to place exactly what sort of time scale, not time scale, what sort of time in history, shall we say, yeah. they are actually in. Yeah, I expected it to have dated more than it did. Mm, it was, I think it's because there's no real signifiers. I mean, there's a lack of mobile phones, but then he wouldn't necessarily... Right. There was no real need to use mobile phones. Other than that, it was very hard to place exactly what time they're so in. So there's cars. Cars are always a piece. But if you don't have... I know nothing about cars. technology. So, well. so to me, again, there was no real signifier there. There was just cars. Yeah, and American cars are so much different from British cars that it's not a useful signifier for us. <laughs> it doesn't work. Oh, <laughs> you just think, oh, that's an American car. It's different, yeah. Oh, 
How funny. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's it's really is very difficult for us to place a film just by looking at the cars. Mm. Uh, I always look at whether or not they've got flat screen TVs as a good indicator. How how big and bulky the televisions are. Mm. Yeah, and phones again, phones, phones is an obvious one, but yeah. if neither phones of those are, are mentioned or or part of the plot then it's very difficult. You're right about that. That's a good observation. Right, so now we will wrap up our chat about Memento, <laughs> having dip, dipped back in again. <laughs> and it's the time of the podcast where we have a little quiz. Uh-oh. And Claire, you are our quizzee this week. And you will be answering some questions about the 1998 rom-com You've Got Mail, starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. I did tell you why I picked that one. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> I Like I told you guys before, I rarely watch a movie again and again and again. But if there's one movie that I do know, it is this one. And it happened to be because of the fact that I saw it with somebody in the movie theater when it first came out. And we had gone to a bookstore that day, and I, I just loved Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. I thought they were really lovely and splendid. And um, my husband told me years and years ago I was not allowed to own this movie because I know this movie by heart, and I can't help but recite the lines at the same time. <laughs> and he said I was forbidden from owning this film, and because I'm a horrible, evil, snotty wife... I um, Netflixed the film Shop Around the Corner, which is a, an old Jimmy Stewart film, which is based on a stage play, but it's basically the same story. So You've Got Mail was an adaptation of, of that. And um, my husband sat down and watched it with me, the whole black and white film, and never once did he put together that it was basically <laughs> an older version of You've Got Mail. <laughs> so at the end, I stood up off the sofa and I said... Um, Hey, did you like that movie? He goes, yeah, it was a really nice story. I really, really liked that one. I said, you do? You really, really liked that one? He says, yeah, it was a good story. And I said, does it remind you of anything? And he says, no, I haven't seen that one. I go, hmm, shop around the corner. Hmm, does it remind you of anything? Mail, it was called mail. And he says, no. And I said, I basically made you watch You've Got Mail. And he went from pleasant from having enjoyed this movie with me to absolutely upset like <laughs> Rachel and I literally fell on the floor rolling and laughing because I was so pleased at myself that I had made him watch this thing and he had no idea that's nice and tricksy I like it <laughs> I watch it every Thanksgiving I kick my husband out of the house go for a walk go for a smoke do what you need to do I'll make dinner leave me alone and I, I listen to the movie while I cook Every year. Can I just say that this? I'm finding this all really bizarre because if I have an affinity with very few films, but that is one that I've seen so many times. And I, like you, don't watch films over and over again. But this one, I think it's down to the fact that it was one of the only VHS tapes that I had that was mine. And I had a video player in my bedroom <laughs> as a teenager. So I would just watch one of the three films that I owned because we didn't have cable or Sky or anything like that. I just had three films and that was one of them. So I think I used to watch it probably couple of times a week growing up and recently oh I got my daughter who's now of the right age to appreciate it to watch it and she absolutely loved it absolutely loved it it's a classic it's funny because <laughs> we're talking about things that are of the time and this one is definitely one that gets dated oh definitely um 
really, really easy. And for some people that's upsetting, you know, it's, it's distracting. And for people like probably you and me, it's almost like nostalgia. It's like going home. You know? <laughs> it's very I nice. think my sister was watching it with me recently, and she's she's a lot younger than I am. And uh, she said, what is that noise? The dial-up and connect noise. <laughs> yeah. What is that? Yeah. My daughter's very confused like she... about some of the technology going on there. But... <laughs> my sister asked me earlier this week, I was telling her something about... Um, pay phones there's a pay phone at the library and she was going to call me from the library when she's ready for me to pick her up and she says how do you know so much about pay phones <laughs> and i said lynn i've been around a little bit longer than you have and she says i know but they've been outdated for a while <laughs> That's where you say, Lord, please hold my hand and guide me and hold my other hand too so I don't pop my sister. <laughs> okay, so let's do a quiz. So we've established that we've got some pretty <laughs> hardcore You've Got Male fans on the podcast. Um, Uh-oh. I can't count myself as one of them, but I'm asking the questions, not answering Have them. Have you even seen it? I, I don't know. If I've seen it, it was a very long time ago. I think if you saw it. That I would, you would like love it. it. I do have a soft spot for for nineties <laughs> rom coms. It could happen to you is one of Yay. my favourites. Oh, it's better than that. Um, oh. It's better than it could happen to you. It is much better than that. Oh, okay. One. Well, maybe I should. That that is a good one though. Right. So five questions. I feel like I ought to make this a um, a competition rather than um, just putting it out there. So if you'd like to answer, call out your name if you know the answer, and I'll I'll let whoever wants to go first, uh, whoever gets in first, have the first shot at answering. So question one. This is the third team-up between Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Name one of their previous films that they starred in together. Ruth. (laughs) (laughs) Sleepless in Seattle. Sleepless in Seattle. Joe versus the Volcano. That was a better one. She should get the point for that because that is a better film. I'm I'm giving you a point each. Um, How kind. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not competitive at all. (laughs) (laughs) It felt weird shouting out my own name, I must say. But I did it. I did it for the for the win. Question two: What is Kathleen's online AOL username? Ruth. Shop girl. Shop girl is correct. <laughs> it is correct. <laughs> oh my god! Don't cry, shop girl. Don't cry. Which member? Question three: Which member of the Monty Python team was in the film but had several scenes cut? Oh, I have no idea. I don't know. Did they have all of them cut? I, I, <laughs> I don't know, quite possibly. But the answer is Michael Palin. Um, he was to play a benevolent writer. So the fact that he says he was to play... Yeah, he yes, was not, not in, in the film. He's not in the film. So Michael mm. Palin, tough luck. <laughs> Number four. What is the name of Joe's dog? Oh, Claire! Oh. Brinkley. Brink- oh. Brinkley is my dog. Your name, your dog's called Brinkley as well. <laughs> Fantastic. No, 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 no. That's his line. No, not, not my dog. My dog's name is Sherlock. But that's how he starts out. It's like Brinkley. Brinkley is my dog. And he talks about how he leaves like a, a large <laughs> inner tube all day and how he likes to eat bagels off the street. And yeah, Brinkley is my dog. <laughs> Which is, and apparently that's the name of the dog who played Hooch in Turner and Hooch. Oh. Bit of, bit of dog trivia. Tom Hanks and dogs. Tom Hanks and dogs. And so it's 2-all. That's exciting, oh. isn't it? So the final question. Uh-oh. What film is Joe obsessed with? Ruth, The Godfather. Oh, 
Yes. Ruth, you got there just yes. first. I'm I'm going to put that down to the time lag across the Atlantic Ocean, though. So I think. I, I, Thanks. I can't see. I can't see any. I may have to go to the mattresses. <laughs> I can't see any evidence that either of you is a bigger "You've Got Mail" fan than the other. Oh, I'm so proud. Although you're both definitely bigger "You've Got Mail" fans than I am. That's definitely You, you don't true. know that. Well, that can be fixed. <laughs> you haven't seen it. So potentially I could be as big as you've got a male <laughs> fan. So all that remains to say is a big thank you to our guests, Claire Turner. Would you like to do a little plug to your podcast, Claire? Oh, thank you so much. Um, my name is Claire Tanner. I'm the producer and co-host of the Filmback Podcast. My podcast husband, who's not my real-life husband, but is my partner in podcasting, is Corey Titus. And between the two of us, we have the show The Filmback, and we talk to filmmakers, writers, producers, actors, anybody who's involved in that process about their journey and their craft, what they're working on, and how they do what they do. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, any place that you listen to your favorite podcasts. And you can find me on Twitter at FilmbackClaire, that's F-I-L-M-B-A-C-K-C-L-A-I-R-E. And thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. And Ruth, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. And I'm Philip Sharman. You can catch me every Tuesday on the Wiki Shuffle podcast, which is my usual hangout where me and my host colleagues talk about random articles that we find on Wikipedia and giggle about the results there. So thank you very much for joining us. And we'll be back again, I believe, next week. There's another article, there's another episode coming out. And just remember that here on Pick a Flick, you pick a film, we talk about it simple. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.